All right. Y'all are in a good place today. I like this. It's going to be talkative, which the only negative, and it's not a negative in my opinion, just maybe in some of yours, I'll go longer because of that, but uh, y'all are even okay with that. Nobody's got anything in the oven at home, right? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Titus chapter 3. So here's what we're doing. We are finishing our very, very fast, very high-level overview of the book of Titus. It is, of course, one of the smallest of Paul's letters. So I gave you the answer already. Who wrote Titus? Paul did, and who do you think he wrote it to? Titus. Very good. So here's what we're doing. We're trying to take the context of Titus and apply it in a certain sort of way to our own context. So let's make sure we remember what that context is. So Paul, and we're trying to put the pieces together here because the background of Titus is not in the book of Acts. And so many times when we read through Acts, we like to plug in where different scriptures happen, where Paul wrote different things to different groups of people. We have to assume then, as church tradition tells us, that Paul got out of prison at the end of, book, of the book of Acts. So if you've read Acts, you see that it's all culminating in Paul finally getting to Rome, except when he's getting to Rome, what is he wearing? Chains. He got to Rome in chains. He had originally told the Romans, if you read the book of Romans, if you remember this, he'd collected an offering among the churches, the Greek churches in Asia Minor, and, and to some degree in Greece, and was going to take it to Jerusalem on his way to Rome. He had always planned to go to Rome. He knew it was God's will that he would go to Rome. He had actually received direct revelation from God himself that he was going to Rome. He just didn't realize how he was going to get there. So when Acts ends, Paul has made it to Rome, but he's in prison, and we know about a decade later, Paul is dead at Roman execution under the reign of Emperor Nero. What we do not know is what Paul did between the end of the book of Acts and that final execution. So, we have to plug in the events of Titus during that window, which gives credence to the fact that church tradition has said that Paul got out of prison and was arrested again later. And so that's what Paul's doing. He went to Crete, which if you're familiar with your geography, and if you come on Wednesday nights, we're really nailing that geography down. And if that's a turnoff, I'm sorry. It's a really fun time. You really should come and see what the... Yes, exactly. Okay. So the Mediterranean Sea is kind of in the middle of the terrain. Mediterranean, you get, yes, Mediterranean Sea. So the ancient world kind of revolved around that place. Crete is that big island there in the middle. And Paul has gone and done ministry in Crete. Then he leaves Crete to go where? Good question. But he leaves someone there. Who is it he leaves there? Titus. Very good. He writes this letter back to Titus, reminding him of the reason he left him there. It's not like he left and then wrote instructions later. He gave him instructions before he left, but sometimes you need that encouragement, that reminder, that letter from your mentor that says, hey, this is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to accomplish that task. That's what the book of Titus is. Paul is writing back to Titus on Crete, who's doing this ministry, and he gives him one basic charge. And if you remember the first week, two weeks ago, or if you've read the first chapter of Titus, you remember what that charge is. In the literal language, it says, appoint something in every town. Elders. Appoint elders in every town. In modern lingo, that's not what we call it anymore, where, where you know, we get all flowery. <laughs> Play on words. Um, with our lingo now, we plant 
churches. It's the same idea. They're appointing elders in every town. He was called to create these churches, to place them there, to train up godly men who would lead, shepherd, pastor these churches. So he was planting churches in every town in Crete. And then Paul goes over some of the things he's going to be up against. He's got to plant this in a context where he's got opposition from two fronts. There's a religious opposition, and this came from what demographic of people? What religious slash ethnic block? The Jewish people. They were the primary opposition. Most of the persecution of Christians you read in the early church came from within. It came from their own Jewish brothers and sisters. But second, they're dealing with the culture itself. Do you remember how Paul describes the culture of Crete, the Cretan culture? It almost sounds bad. You Cretan. All right, what's the idea of being Cretan? They quote a prophet of their own people, a Cretan philosopher, who says all Cretans are basically terrible people. They're lazy gluttons. And what's Paul's assessment of this Cretan's statement? This is very true. That's their culture. And so he's combating religious piety, that pharisaical tendency that we see in our own culture, we see among even evangelical Christians today. That was one of their challenges, but also they had a radical, ungodly culture battling both fronts. So he had to appoint elders, godly men who had godly lifestyles, so he could confront and be different and stand out from the culture they were in, but also they had to be well-grounded in their knowledge of the scriptures so that they could confront the Pharisees. Now, of course, there's overlap on both of these sides, but you can see the two main things going on. Then we got to chapter 2, and he says, so teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, we saw in that, that sound doctrine mostly had to do with our works rather than just what we typically think of with doctrine. Now, we get most of that doctrine actually in chapter 3, and it's going to be fundamental to what we go over today, but he spends most of his time in chapter 2 telling different segments of the congregations how they should act. He tells the older men to act a certain way, the older women to act a certain way, to train the younger women. The older men would do the same. The young men need to be steadfast. Even slaves need to act a certain way. All of these relationships, and we saw the organic nature of church membership last week. And so now we're picking up in chapter 3, where Paul is going to give a a, a very fast flow of behaviors, and then he's going to root them all in the gospel. And so let's see how Paul pulls all of this together. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is the one verse of Scripture many of us wish, wish was not there. Unfortunately, it's not the one verse. It's in several other passages as well. But what should Christians do to rulers and authorities? Within God's will, submit to them. And this is part of our relationship with the world, to submit. How did Jesus respond to the world when he came? Would we describe him as a tyrannical ruler or a suffering servant? This is what he did. Jesus laid down the example for us. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Ooh, that's hard in a Facebook world. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, what people do you think are included in that particular expression, all people? 
In this case, yeah, it's definitely everyone. Now, particularly, he's emphasizing what people do you think? You said Greeks, Jews, the non-believers. This is the particular emphasis of the passage. We're speaking ill of no one. We're being gentle. We're showing perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. So clearly, who's he talking about? Those Cretans. Those people following the Jewish myths. That's who he's talking about. We need to treat them obediently. Speak no evil of them. Avoid quarreling with them. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward those people. Why in the world would you want to do that? Do you ever watch the news? Anybody just turn on the news and watch the news? Does it ever affect your mood? If you watch the news, then the answer to the second question was yes. That or you, you know, need to get a hearing aid or you know, turn on subtitles or something. You're missing something if it's not affecting your mood. Do you ever get fighting angry reading Facebook? People sharing articles, okay? Yeah, we all know what we're talking about. Those are the people that Paul was telling Titus, be friendly to those people. Don't speak ill of those people. Be gentle with those people. Be courteous with those people. Why? How could we do that? It's not even why, but how? How could I possibly be friendly with people who believe that about blank? You know how it works. You can fill in, there's a hundred different topics we could come up with right now, just in the political arena, the social arena, social justice arena. Fill the blanks. We get angry, all of us do, if we're paying attention to the things going on in the world. How could we do otherwise? Verse 3, this is all of it. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, who is Paul saying that describes? Us. All of us in this room say, well, I grew up in church. Then you're probably more of the Pharisee type. Okay? And if you're more of the Pharisee type, where does that put you with Jesus if we were reading the Gospels? You're the object of more criticism. You're the object of more fire and more brimstone. I don't care what your background is. This is your background. In doctrine, we call this, y'all know, we love the term. Ever since Romans, we've thrown this term out. We're all what? Because of the D. Depraved. We are depraved people. And if we ever come to God thinking that we've earned this position, then we're committing perhaps the gravest sin of all. We're putting ourselves on equal footing with God. We're saying, we didn't need your help. You have to respect the goodness that's in me. But that's not what we see in the gospel. That's not what we see in any of the scriptures. That's not the attitude of any man in the Old Testament. They're all horrible sinners. We read the New Testament, and even our greatest heroes are always making mistakes. We come to God as foolish, disobedient people led astray, Slaves to various passions, yet what does he do? This is why I always, I love Ephesians chapter 2. This is one you should just commit to memory because it gives us this threefold problem that we have. We're dead in sin. We're following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. And we're following the desires of our own flesh. And by nature, we were children of God's 
wrath. Now, does anybody know the next two words in the passage? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Now, how many good works do you do in those five verses? Now, good works is mentioned in that passage. If you know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's the very last phrase at the very end of the paragraph. It's only after God has done all of the work, that he's done the saving, that he's done the, the justifying, that he's done the regenerating, the making you new in Christ, the making you alive, the grace, the forgiveness. All of that precedes good works. It's important that we know that God has a relationship with us based on grace. Has anyone ever tried to give you something and you didn't want it because you didn't want a handout? This happened, right? You, you, you don't want help, right? Because to take help means what? You're weak. You needed it. You couldn't do it on your own. All of God's relationships with us are defined by that term grace. What does that assume about us then? That you're weak. That you're helpless. Paul would say we were enemies, we were ungodly, yet it was in that state, while in that state, that God showed his mercy and grace and love towards us. So here's what Paul is doing with these few verses. So take that grace that we've been given and use it as the standard for how we deal with other people. You follow that? So here's the first point in the outline. Our interaction with the world should be infused with the same grace by which we were saved. So your interaction with the world should be infused with the same grace that saved you. All right, there's a good biblical parable that Jesus tells about this scenario. There was a man who owed a great debt to the master. The master calls in the debt. God shows up, begs and pleads for mercy. You know how the story goes. What's the master do? He forgives him. He shows mercy. He forgives the debt. And the debt, in their terms, would be more than you could possibly make in your lifetime. Jesus is telling the parable as clear hyperbole. There's no person who could ever owe this much money in reality. But that's us in the parable. That's what we've been forgiven. But then this guy who was forgiven the great debt, he goes out. He's walking around town. And he finds a guy who owes him like $20. What's he do? He grabs the man, he shakes him and says, give me what you owe me. Starts to choke him and strangle him. Throws him into prison because the guy owes him $20. Well, does he have the legal right to do that? I mean, we kind of want to say yeah, right? But not according to God. How's that parable end? The master who forgave him the debt takes him, throws him into hell. That's how great an emphasis Jesus puts on the grace we've received must be shared. This is what is commanded of us. This is the same lingo, the same system, the same structure that Paul, Paul is putting forward here. Our interaction with the world all to be filled with the same grace that saves us. All right, so let's see a little bit more about this grace. Let's look at verse 4, Titus 3, 4. 
but. So we, we were those things. We hated one another. We were slaves to our passions. We were all of that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's such a beautiful sentence already. When you see all of this hate and this malice and this evil, what would you expect to be revealed from God? Wrath. That's the biblical concept, is that wrath would pour out, but that's not what comes. Instead, it's goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior. It appeared He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You see how that works, right? How much do your good works contribute to salvation? They contributed to the need. Right? They're why you needed salvation. Your works weren't good. They were evil. God does this work by His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Second point in the bulletin. Just make sure you see this. Our salvation is based wholly on the work of God and should drive us towards good works. So it's based wholly on the work of God and should drive us towards good works. So verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal Life. Now give me the other biblical expression for eternal life. Y'all should know this one by now. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Eternal life is always a direct reference to this. We're going to have to redo the whole series. Resurrection life. Remember, it's synonymous. They're exactly the same. So in hopes that we will be part of the resurrection of the dead. So that's the aim. That's the direction we're going. This saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So do good works come into the picture at all? Absolutely. Because people who have been saved devote themselves to good works. It's not the first time we saw that. Just go back to verse 1. So remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for what? Every good Work. Go back to chapter 2, verse 14. It ends, will be God's own possession, a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. Go back to chapter 1, the last verse, talking about these other guys. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Does the word good work come up very many times in Titus? And we're not done. It's going to come up again. Let's keep going. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We're in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now how high of a, a rating do you think Paul would put on unity among the body of Christ? Based on that passage, you stir up division, two warnings, two strikes, and then what happens? We're done with you. Wow. That's stronger than we see with even other sins. This dividing of the body is horrible. Have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
Now, usually when you get to this point in a letter from Paul, you, you turn off because now the last bits is just instructions to different people, but there's actually some very rich things that go on in this instruction. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Grace, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What was his final theological instruction to Titus to tell the people? Devote themselves to good works. So there's no biblical concept, and unfortunately it's what we've sold in Christianity, that when you're young, you can say this special prayer, this magic prayer that we get from a magic book, and if you pray this magic prayer that we got from our magic book, then you get a ticket. It's an invisible ticket, but it's in the shape of a cross, and if you have that ticket, you get to go to heaven when you die. That sounds a lot more like mysticism than it does biblical Christianity. Is there anywhere in the Bible that we get this lingo of pray some magic little prayer that will make you a Christian, and then you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. You've got your get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not in there. It's not in there at all. The concept is not biblical. The concept is God does a saving work in us that changes everything. We become devoted to good works. We become new creatures in Christ who are zealous for good works. This is our direction. This is our aim. This is what God has made us to be. When God saves someone, it proves fruitful every single time. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. We've discussed this before, that the blood of Jesus is so good at what it does that if it touches you, it produces results. Every single time. Just like when Jesus told Lazarus to come out of the tomb, what did Lazarus do? He came out of the tomb. Does that show us some innate ability in Lazarus, or does it show us the power of the Son of God? It demonstrates the power of the Son of God. So when Jesus appears, and He saves us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, and He washes us, by regeneration and by renewal of the Holy Spirit that He's poured out on us richly, and He justifies us by His grace, do you think we will become people devoted to good works? Guaranteed. Now, let's make sure we don't miss the obvious. Don't we wish it worked like that? I got saved, I walked the aisle, I got baptized, and I woke up, and I never sinned again. Uh, I did perfect good works every single day. Anybody that described their journey? We're going to have an argument if you put your hand up. So that's not, that's not how it works, right? That's why Paul's writing the letter, is it not? Why is he having to tell these things to Titus? Because he's having to remind his people of these things. This work is not just happening like that. It's something that's progressive. It grows. In fact, we call this in theology sanctification. It's you're becoming more like 
Christ. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to put it forward like this. So what are the marks of a person devoted to good works? What exactly are you striving to become? And this is a question we as the elders have asked and put together these four things. So they're going to start with P. There's nothing special about that. It's just alliteration sometimes help us, helps us remember. But there's four things. So if you said, what, what is really a healthy church member look like? What does it really look like to be a person, like Paul says, devoted to good works or zealous for good works? We want to identify, and I think we can see them all in Scripture, four specific things. Number one, the first mark of a person devoted to good works is they are purposeful. 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 All right, so just look at the end of verse 8. See it? You're devoted to good works. What happens? These things are excellent and profitable for people. Excellent, profitable. All right, look at verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. In other words, instead of a P word, we could have said fruitful here. People who are zealous for good works, who are devoted to good works, are purposeful. Here's the idea. Someone who really gets it, someone who's really on board, someone who's really a dedicated follower of Christ or devoted to good works is not someone who does good works passively. You understand what I'm saying? They seek it out. How can I serve? This is why I love Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider. What's the word consider mean? Like, think about it. Plan. Strategize. Let us consider how to stir up one another, to love and, interestingly enough, good works, good deeds. How can we do that? How can we get people stirred up? How can we be purposeful in everything that we do? If you are trying to do good works, do you think you're going to do more good works than if you just do them passively? Absolutely. There's no real question there. Be purposeful in every interaction, purposeful in every relationship, purposeful in every coincidence. You know why I put brackets around that, right? Because what's really going on? God, God incident. I can go with that. God is controlling, creating, and giving us these circumstances so that we can be purposeful. Second, not only is someone devoted to good works purposeful, they're also prepared. Okay, see, that's almost the exact wording in chapter 3, verse 1. After being obedient, be ready for every good work. Now, we could look at this from several different perspectives. Be ready for every good work could include, to some degree, preparing your attitude, preparing your heart, preparing your mind, shaping it and thinking and praying about how and when and where and why, but also, to some degree, this is learning. This is knowing what you're supposed to do. This is being teaching the doctrine that accords, or teaching what accords with sound doctrine. This is knowing how the gospel applies to your life and being obedient to the gospel. You can't obey something if you don't know it's commanded. You can't follow something if you don't know the direction it's going. You have to be prepared. We can see this. So be purposeful. Be prepared. Now, number three. I think this one is particularly useful for our culture. We're saying be present. Present. Not present as in it's Christmas time and we give presents. 
but I'm calling roll, and I'm marking you as absent or present. Present in that sense. Now, we could mean that in a way that was very synonymous with purposeful, right? Just be present in what you're doing. We mean it a little bit more literal. Actually, so let's just start with church. How involved can you be with your church if you're not literally, physically present? It's, it's kind of hard, right? All right? We tend to think we can because we liked, we liked the Facebook page. We, you know, we, we listened to the sermon online, which is a lot better than nothing. But that's not the same. So what if you treated your family that way? I'm going to keep up with my, my family on Facebook. That's how I'm going to know what's going on in my kids' lives. Instead of spending time with them, I'm going to do it on Facebook. How, how well would you rate that parenting strategy? It's not even zero, right? There's probably, that's like abuse, okay? That's a negative work, all right? So be present. So actually be involved in your church. Be involved in your family. I mean, what's the common joke in our culture, right? Here's a cell phone, and you're talking to somebody doing this. Yeah, how, how, how was your day? Yeah? Uh-huh. What'd you do at school today? That's right. Okay. Selfie. You know, and it's, it's going back and forth, okay? <laughs> wow, okay. I've taken like three selfies ever. Is that the right angle, you know? Is it up or down? Okay. You, you're following me, right? That's how we do it. Now, that's a, that's a good joke, but that's a very literal problem for most of us, but that's just a, a big analogy of what we're doing, though, isn't it? We check out. Maybe you're not present with your family or present with your church because you're present with some hobby. Not that hobbies are inherently wrong. You're present somewhere. Are you present where it matters? That's the question. You could be present in your job in an unhealthy way. Or you could be present with your television in an unhealthy way. You can be present with that cell phone in an unhealthy way. I am saying if you want to be devoted to good works, you need to be present the body of Christ, present with the family God has given you, present in the community God has placed you in. Are you present? And number four, this one's a big deal in our culture especially. We have a consumerism culture, right? If we don't like our service at one restaurant, what do we do? Go someplace else. We treat relationships that way. We, we treat churches that way. We, obviously, we treat our jobs that way. We treat so many things that way in our life. We have no ability, it seems, to persevere. But a truly devoted follower of Christ, devoted to good works, is going to be persevering. They're going to have what we usually call in our culture now, the, the current lingo catchphrase is grit, right? Stick with it. I want you to see this. It, it's in here. Paul can't hardly write a letter without showing you the basis of his grit, the basis of why he can persevere. So jump back to chapter 2, verse 12. This is talking about what God has done. This grace has appeared. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in the now waiting for some particular, precise moment. It's worded a little differently. Same writer, still Paul, in Philippians. I want you to read how Paul writes this in Philippians. A few, I mean, yeah, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And here's the key, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We could replace that whole last phrase with eternal life. What's Paul's aim? Eternal life. It's forward-looking by any means possible. Not that I've already obtained this. I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because a mark of a truly devoted follower of Christ is persevering. And how did Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? The two men built a house. One built it on the sand and the rain came and destroyed the house. The other man built a house and the rain never came. No. It's about where he built the house, right? He built it on the rock. And the same wind, the same storm, the same rain, the same flood, still came the difference. The reason one perseveres and one does not was not based on what the house was made of. It was based on where the house was made. Why can Paul look forward and say, I'm going to make the resurrection my own? Well, one simple answer. Because Christ has made me his own. And every one of these things, and being purposeful, being prepared, being present, and even persevering, the basis every time is not my good works, not my good motivations, not my good attitude. It's that in spite of the sinner that I was, Christ manifested his grace and mercy. And he justified me by his death on the cross. He gave me new life through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his resurrection. And because of that, we become devoted followers of Christ, devoted to good works. Guys, as Church at the Square, let's, let's do this together. As fitting as it is, Philippians 2.12 applies to this situation as good as it does any. Paul famously says, work out your own salvation. And that's classically misinterpreted because we think work out our own means me. It's not not what Paul said there. He was telling the church at Philippi, guys, I'm not coming back. So you, Southern English, that would be what? Y'all, y'all work out your salvation because I'm not coming back. You've got to do this together. Guys, let that be the mark of Church of the Square. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds so that we would be a people zealous for good works.